And if you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 or Matthew chapter 16. And as you do, think about if something stops working, who do you call? Like if you have something that breaks, who do you call? Now, maybe you're in that fortunate position where you have someone in your life where they can fix anything. And you say, all right, if it doesn't work, this is the person I call. But generally, if something stops working, who you call depends on what it is that is not working. So, for example, if you find out your kidneys aren't working right, you're going to call kind of one type of person, and that will be different than the person you're going to call if you find out your carburetor is not working. They're two different individuals, and they also, also use two different tools. So, for example, you have the tools that are required to fix a carburetor are different than the tools that are required to fix a kidney and, and vice versa. And so if something is broken, you have to, one, all right, know who do we go to to help fix this? And then what type of tools are required? Oh, thank you. Thank you. What type of tools are required to fix that thing that's broken? So, uh, like, for example, uh, in the middle of last night, uh, we had a knock on our door, and it was one of the neighborhood teenagers who's letting us know that he hit our car that was parked out in front of our house. So right now, like, we know, all right, we, we at least know the general category. I don't know who actually to call specifically, but in general, I know I don't need to call Nemours. They're not going to be that helpful. Or I don't need to call, you know, the beauty salon and say, you know, can you fix this? They, they, that's a different problem. And so we say, all right, who are we going to call? And then what tools are needed? All right, so you have, you know, a car that's been smashed. You know who you call. Um, who do you call when your heart breaks? Like not the valves, but the, 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 the emotions. Like, who do you call when you feel yourself sliding into discouragement and despair? Who do you call to, to help fix you when you feel like you're giving way to anxiety or anger? You know, who do you call or what tools do you need to fix um, when you notice that, that, that there's a rupture and a relationship between a mother and daughter is breaking? Or the relationship between two friends are breaking. Relationship between father and son are breaking. Who do you call to, to fix those things? And so what I want us to think about this morning is that Jesus, in essence, is the ultimate repairman. He's not like the Maytag repairman. So kids, this used to be an advertisement from a Maytag. They, they sell washing, washing machines and dryers. And they, the, the, the joke was that the Maytag repairman has nothing to do because they never break. Well, Jesus is not like the Maytag repairman because we break all the time. And he hasn't retired from his ministry of healing. He still engages in that healing. But what we're going to see this morning is that the, the people he uses to engage in that healing and the tools he, use, he uses might surprise us. 
So our theme is that Jesus is the ultimate repairman. And what we want to, the question we want to ask is, all right, how does he continue that uh, repair work? So where we are is just at the time we're in, in this season in life of our church, we're in a season of rebuilding and reestablishing. You know, the last two years have been very difficult for everyone and they've presented tremendous challenges, but also great opportunities to return to the foundations. And the ideal text to do that is Matthew 16 to 20, because in that Jesus gives us his blueprint for how he wants to build his house. And so as we think as a church, right, how are we trying to build this house? We want to follow the blueprint that he gives. And in Matthew chapter 16, he says, I'm going to build it on two foundations, this confession that Peter makes, and then this commitment to follow him. So we've been looking at that confession and it's found in chapter 16, uh, starting, uh, you can pick up in verse 15, where Jesus has asked them, you know, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say, you know, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then here's the most important question you can ever be asked. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus praises him and he says, bless you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm going to give you these keys of the kingdom, the keys of this house, and you're going to have authority and power. It's going to be built, this house. And so what we're looking, when Peter makes a confession that Jesus is the Christ, that's actually a confession that the foundation of the house is going to have three kind of key pieces. It's a confession about not just who Jesus is, but what he came to do. So he came to teach us as our great prophet. So the foundation of his, his teaching uh, he came to lead us, that we're called to follow him. He's our king. And so we follow him. Uh, there's leadership. And then he also came as God's great high priest to heal us. And you can see this ministry. Uh, Matthew lays it out beautifully in Matthew chapter 4 and then bookends it again in chapter 5, where 4 is establishing what Jesus did when he came the first time. It says he came and he went throughout all the region preaching and teaching. He went preaching, proclaiming, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he, he, he preached and then he taught those two things, or that thing, his, his teaching ministry. And then it says, as he was walking by the sea, he saw Simon and Peter, James and John, and he calls them. He says, you follow me. And he, he calls them to follow him as their king. That, that's what discipleship is. We follow him. He's our leader. Uh, we follow him. And he tells them, I'm going to make you into fishers of men. I'm going to make you into something you can't make yourself into. So it means to faithfully follow him. And then it says that he goes into all the region healing all of their diseases healing. And that actual word is therapuo, which is where we get therapy. So what I want you to think about today is like the concept that Jesus as the great high priest uh, engages in therapy. He engages in healing. He brings about repair. And I want to think about, all right, what does he actually, what does he repair? Or how does he continue that healing work today and what are those tools? So you think about all right, that, that work of healing, that work of mercy uh, was not just like a secondary part of his act when he came. It wasn't supplemental to what he came to do. It's absolutely vital. It was in the, the tangible healing that he's breaking the power of sin. It's as his work as the high priest that he's paying the penalty of sin. It's in this work that he's undoing and reversing all of the consequences 
of sin and showing that he's victorious over the works of the devil. And then the resurrection was his seal of victory over death and the the unleashing of this principle of new life into the world that's going to restore all things. So the glory of Jesus' ministry and the, the beauty and the power of the gospel is it has the power to heal every single disease we can experience and it can heal and bring wholeness to every area of brokenness in life. And what we see, if you go back to the very beginning in Genesis, that as soon as sin entered into the world, there was kind of this fourfold brokenness that happened in our relationships. Our relationship with God was broken. And then our relationship with ourselves was broken. So Adam and Eve hid and had shame for the first time. And then our relationship with one another was broken as they started to throw each other under the bus and say, it wasn't me, it's the woman you gave me. And then the relationship with the world was broken as it started producing thorns and and it was was cursed. So uh, this fourfold relationship of brokenness and the third great work that Jesus does is he comes primarily to heal each area of that brokenness. And so his great first task is to heal our relationship with God. That relationship is broken. And so Jesus makes a way so we can re-enter into the presence of the living God. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, after God puts them out of the garden, you know, he puts the, the cherubim, the angel, is standing there with a flaming sword turning in every direction. And it very specifically says it turned in every way, guarding the tree of life. You can't get back into God's presence. And of course, Jesus, what he does on the cross is he goes up to that flaming sword and instead of commanding it just to be gone, he bears it. And now a way has been made so we can enter into the presence of God again. So he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. We can come back into God's presence. So the first great thing, his his priestly work, is that he restores our relationship with God. So one of the very things we see that Jesus, you know, his healing ministry, the work of healing is all about healing relationships. It's relational healing, and it heals our relationship with God first. And then it filters out to heal. Uh, we ourselves are healed, and then it flows into our relationships with others. That gets healed. That first great task, bringing forgiveness and healing so our broken relationship with God can be made new. Now we can love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then that can flow into self-healing and then healing of uh, relationship with others so we can love them. So his primary work is the work of a priest. And what the priest does is the priest is the relational repair man. So it's all right, you have relationships that need repair. Who do you call? You call the priests. That's what they do. They, they heal relationships. And their primary tools that they use, the tools they use are sacrifice. Sacrifice is the primary tools that they use to heal. So let's kind of unpack that a little more as we think about this. And what I want you to think about now is, all right, well, how, all right, so if that priestly ministry of Jesus is a relational healing, he heals our relationship with God, ourselves, others, you know, how does he go about doing that? You know, in what ways? How does he, how does he bring about that healing? 
As we go through all of these things, I think it's really important to have a couple distinctions. He'll do it in a a formal way in each of these things, and then he'll do it in an informal way. Or if you don't like that, he'll do it in an institutional way where things will be institutionalized, like in the organization of the church, and then he'll do it in an organic way in the living dynamic relationship between people. Or another way to think about it is there's certain ways he heals us Sunday as we gather together, and then there's certain ways that he heals us all throughout the week as we go out into the world. But part of our foundational confession is that Christ came and then he pours out on his church in the foundation, kind of like this is the concrete that he pours out are three great gifts. The gifts of his teaching ministry, the gifts of his leading ministry, and then the gifts of his healing ministry. So let's think about the gifts of healing. And actually, the way I want you to think about it is let's think about, all right, throughout the history of the church, How has that gift of his healing ministry been formalized or institutionalized? How has the church gone about trying to continue Jesus's healing uh, ministry? Because all three of those gifts have taken on a certain formal uh, reality and then an informal one. And so the primary kind of avenue that the church has used to continue Jesus's relational healing ministry is kind of the ministry of of what we call the diaconate or deacons. They were kind of the ones who were formally installed to kind of spearhead and lead Jesus's mercy ministries in in the church. So you can go back to the early church. You can look at some of the early church uh, manuals. There's several that are just I was going to say really fascinating to read. I don't know how many of you would find them really fascinating to read. Uh, I think they're really interesting to read. And they're early church. They're basically policy and procedure manuals. I mean, nobody finds those interesting for anything. But they're policy and procedure manuals. For their, There's one called the Didache, the Testament of the Lord, and the, or the Apostolic Tradition, and the Testament of our Lord. And they're kind of compilations of these early church policy and procedure uh, manuals. And one of the things that's really interesting when you look and you kind of uh, piece these together, uh, in every local church, there would be multiple elders. And some that normally there'd be a, a singular bishop and then multiple elders. How, who they were, how they related is, is contentious. But they would have the responsibility responsibility of kind of leading and teaching, and then there would be a group that would be designated. They would be the deacons. They would be designated. They'd be elected by the people, and their primary ministry, their primary responsibility was to offer physical, tangible care to to the poor and the hurting in the community. Mercy. And the primary people that would receive that care were widows. You know, the classic widows, uh, orphans, and aliens, strangers, but widows because they were the most vulnerable in the society. And you can look at the church in Rome by the second century had on their books. So a formal record of all of the widows that the church in Rome supported on a daily basis. There was about 2,000 widows that they supported every day. And that was the, the, the ministry of, of the deacons. And then you look throughout church history as that kind of grew and developed, and it really shifted kind of in the Middle Ages, in the Reformation, they, uh, one of the big emphasis of several of the reformers was to restore that office and to, to restore what they were doing. So this was one of the big emphasis that uh, Calvin had. He put a lot of emphasis on getting kind of that diaconal office uh, back up and running. And so what he would say, this is uh, interesting. He said that every time the church meets, the central act of worship, uh, he says, uh, 
Thus, we ought to provide no meeting of the church should ever take place. And of course, remember, in this time, the church met every day. So they met every morning. And he said, we should never meet without four things happening when we gather. There should always be word proclaimed. There should always be prayers and most prayers were sung. You began to sing prayers. That's why we sing in church. Your singing is verbal prayers. That's an act of corporate praying uh, to music. So we, we word, praying, and then partaking of the supper. So we thought every time they gathered, you should partake of the Lord's Supper. Now what's interesting in Geneva, they only di actually did it once every quarter. So he wanted to do it every day, and they actually didn't end up doing it, but once a quarter. So just interesting. And then thought every single time there should be almsgiving, the giving of alms. So that's where you would bring uh, gifts. You bring your offering. Now, they had two kind of categories of deacons that would then take the offerings. So we got to think, all right, it's in a little different world. So every worship service, in essence, he thought you should have a table where you come to the Lord's table and you receive his gift to you. And then there's another table where you then give back your gift to him that's then meant to be taken out and, and, and spread to the poor and, and the needy. And remember, this is a world that's pre, uh, primarily pre, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, hard money, cash. But, you know, this is just after kind of the banking revolution where most people's wealth is primarily in kind of tangible, perishable goods. So, for example, like Calvin's salary was part Florin's cash, and then it was also wheat, wine, and chickens. And so that was just part of the paycheck. People bring chickens. So at the table, you would bring what you had as a donation to those in need in the community. So at the table, I mean, you'd have stuff lined up. Like, I mean, you'd have random eggs. Sometimes people bring chickens. Sometimes, I mean, one of the deacon's problems is people would bring like pigs to church. Now, what do you do? Do you just have the pig sitting here or where do you take it? So you think some of our things about technology and things like that, you know, that's, that's easy stuff. You imagine dealing about, all right, what do we do when... You know, Joe's heifer is out in the back trying to eat, you know, things during the service. So they would bring that. And then there was two groups. You had the procurators. They were the ones who were responsible of receiving everything. And they kind of kept tallies on what came in. They kept the logs of who needed what. And then you had the hospitalers. The hospitalers were the ones who would then minister, take the things that were brought, and then minister to the sick, the poor, and the transient. Now, do you hear any words in the hospitalers? So as we think about like hospitality, think about hospital. You ever thought where hospitals come from? You know, the very first hospital in the world was in the fourth century in Caesarea or Cappadocia from the Cappadocian fathers led by Basil the Great in modern day Turkey. It was the first hospital. It grew out of a diaconal ministry in the church where they see so many people wounded and hurting and said, we have to do something. How do we extend Christ's mercy? Those people and it's what, uh, where a hospital came from. And then in Geneva, it was the hospitalers who would then take the, the, the gifts from the people and then serve the, the widows, the poor, uh, all those who had need. At the, the hospital in Geneva, they cared for uh, the sick, the, the transient, the elderly, the widows, and the orphans. And then by the 17th century, all throughout Europe, all throughout Christendom at the time, uh, the social, all social services were in essence done by the deacons in, in every town. Now, it's a little different because then um, churches were funded by the state. 
So like Calvin got his paycheck from the state, but the state didn't do any social services. That was all the church. Now we live in an age where it's been flip-flopped. So the state, and you know, it's just good, bad, just kind of what it is. The state doesn't fund any religious activities, but they've taken over all of the social services. So then the question is, all right, now that we live in this world, what does it mean? Because in many ways, so many of those ministries of mercy to the poor, to the weak, to the needy, to the hurting, to the vulnerable, like those are ours. That's what we're supposed to be doing to continue Jesus's priestly ministry in the world. So how do we do those faithfully now? How are we meant to continue Christ's work of healing today? So actually, just a couple of things to think about. Actually, if you're in one of those healing professions, so let's say by the end of uh, 17th century, the type of things they were running were orphanages, homes for the elderly, schools. You know, our modern education came out of the church's desire to educate everyone. Um, schools, clothing manufacturers, and even food production. They had like, things like bakeries and things like that because people, they needed help. They needed food. So what are we going to do? Well, we'll just make it. We'll make it and give it to them. So all of those things. But now we live in a different world. So how are we faithful to continue Christ's healing ministry now in our world? Well, I think one thing is if you're already in one of those healing professions, like in you know, medical work, in education, in any of these other professions that is, uh, has its roots in Christ's healing ministry, is in one sense, you need to kind of be captured by a vision that you are Christ's representative to extend his mercy and healing in this arena. And need to be filled by the gospel and filled by his spirit and filled by his power because you're already in the arena uh, doing those. And then for all of us who are in different arenas, need to see how every area of brokenness needs to be reversed. That's what his healing ministry came to do, reverse the curse as far as it's found. So the question in any arena, how does the wisdom of Christ and the power of the spirit uh, transform this area? But I think one thing I want to, we'll kind of close, uh, close with this, but one thing I want you to think about, because I think one of the most powerful ways that the power of the gospel is unleashed in your life is through the ministry of wise, loving conversation with people who know you and love you. And this category is a category of pastoral counseling, so instantly when we think of pastoral counseling, we think of, we kind of think, all right, that needs to be left to the professionals. So there's professional people or secular professionals. So either religious professionals or secular professionals. And what I want you to think about is the primary tool that Jesus uses to bring the relational healing in our life is through verbal love from other people. From, it's from neighbor love from other people. You know, it's the power to be able to sustain the weary with a word. It's the power to be able to heal a wound with a word. It's Christ uh, engaging in his uh, priestly ministry through the skillful repairing love that happens through godly conversations. You know, the primary way that Jesus heals broken relationships with, with that we have with ourselves and with others is really through that art of what classically was called soul care, the art of pastoral counseling. One of the 
wonderful little books. This is The Pastor is a Counselor. It's a tiny little book, and David Pallison is kind of his like last plea to try and reintegrate and recapture pastors especially for the beauty of a healthy church being the primary location where relationships can be restored. So you think, all right, what's the context? So if you need kidney surgery, there's a certain context where you're going to need to be in. And I've never seen what goes on in to sterilize a surgical room, but I at least hope it's pretty thorough. But also if you need your carburetor fixed, there's a certain context that you need to be in. Like your living room's not the best context for that. But if you need a relationship to be repaired, what's the best context? And he beautifully argues in the, this book that the best context is, is the local church of people knowing and loving one another. Let I me mean, just kind of contrast it with the, the secularized version of counseling or therapy. You know, I was fascinated to learn that Sigmund Freud himself, I mean, he said, we, therapists, we are secular priests. We train a priesthood to enter out into uh, the world. And it, that type of priesthood is kind of built on certain things. You know, it's built on a certain type of therapeutic professionalism, a type of, uh, you know, detached clinical pay for fee uh, service. You know, this is from the Harvard Guide to Psychology. This is kind of the, the secular counseling gospel is that in every human being, there's a core selfhood that if allowed free and uncontrolled expression would provide the basis for creative, adaptive, and productive living. So everyone who comes into your kind of practice, uh, their core problem is that from somewhere, something, something is uh, imposing on them in such a way where they can't be free to be truly you know, who they are. So that's a gospel. That's telling us what's wrong and telling us what's need to be fixed. But then if you look, all right, what type of real repair work does the soul need? What type of repair work do you need when you're depressed or anxious or angry or fearful? You know, the type of real counseling, the type of repair work or uh, repair work you need is not one of kind of clinical detachment. You need one of just wise love. You need people who love you and are wise and are humble and people of integrity and mercy and clarity and truth and wide-ranging experience who can apply it wisely. You need courage and candor and hope and curiosity and careful listening and people who respond. You people who are willing to live with you in all of your messiness. You know, when it comes to healing broken relationships, Healing broken souls, the personal factors are the most decisive, not the professional. The personal factors of who you are, how you treat people, what you believe. You know, so the primary tools that we have. So think about a couple, just a couple primary tools we have. Uh, we have the tool of, uh, or, you know, when Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, you know, what he's telling us to do is there's a certain way we love them is with words, verbal, verbal love. We love them with attitudes of patient kindness. We love them through actions that are meeting practical and uh, tangible needs. So Christ is still in that healing business and he uses his people to do it. So all of us are a kingdom of priests. All of us need relational healing and then we need to give relational healing. 
So you think, all right, well, what type of tools do we need so we can do that for one another? What type of tools do we need so we can experience that for one another? You know, one of the primary tools that Christ uses to heal relationships is just the skillful, the skillful art, the skillful employment of just good questions. Uh, I'm amazed you read Genesis 3 and 4. It's almost like you see God counseling Adam and Eve and then counseling uh, Cain. And just notice what he does. He just asks some questions. God's first question when Adam is hiding is, where are you? And you think about it, you can go almost, you can, you can go a long way in personal healing, personal relationships, just asking people, where are you? Just, where are you? Where are you? you know, are you angry? Are you detached? Are you disconnected? Are you discouraged? Are you excited? Are you numb? Where are you? And you know, God's second question is, who told you? Once he says something that's wrong, he says, who told you that? That's not true. Who told you that? And then what does he tell when he's asking, you know, Cain, you know, what have you done? You know, the skillful use of questions where you ask people, you know, how are you doing? I'll pick on Dale Peacock because he always asks, how are you doing? And then after you say something, he'll say, really? Really? How are you doing really? So I don't ask him how, I don't, I try to avoid him. (laughs) Don't want to be asked. You know, would you like to talk? How can I pray for you? Where are your pressure points right now? What are your joys? What are your sorrows? Are there any secret gardens you're cultivating and hiding? What are your struggles? What are your delightful victories? What are your burdens? Why are you angry? Why are you anxious? You know, the the skillful employment of just simple questions is one of the primary tools the Redeemer uses to heal relationships. You know, another primary tool that he uses to heal relationships is the wide-ranging experiences we have that are then wisely applied. So you kind of need two things. You need a wide range of experience, but able to apply it wisely. You know, think about it, like the book of Proverbs is our DSM manual. And I was listening to Arthur Brooks, who's a wonderful uh, behavioral psychologist who teaches at Harvard. And uh, he's a man of kind of strong Catholic faith. And I was listening to him this week, and he jokes that uh, every, good, uh, every good reality you'll learn in psychology or social scientists, if it's true, it'll lead you back to the Bible somewhere. And he, he says that the Proverbs is like, this is our DSM manual. Like, this is how you learn how to, how to wisely be able to discern what's going on in people's life. And, you know, you think about the beauty of that gift. You know, this gift of wisdom can be attained by every single one in the person in this room. Like, it's not dependent on gender or ethnicity or age or wealth or socioeconomic status or IQ. You can, you can, you can grow in wisdom. And Proverbs is our manual. That's one repair tool. Another primary repair tool is that he uses uh, men and women who are wiser than us to walk with us. You know, generally they're older. They're older. That's like you see Paul's letters to Titus and Timothy. It's this beautiful demonstration of what it means to have, you know, a godly man walk with uh, two younger men. He names them. He knows them. They discuss particular concerns with specific strengths and weaknesses and builds on an actual relationship with them. And you know, if you think about it, the house that Jesus is building is the ideal context in which that type of relational repair can happen. One of the interesting things that Pallison talks about in this book as he spent his whole lifetime 
kind of end the world of professional kind of secularized uh, counseling. He says, really, we as Christians are living the professional counselor's dream. Because he said a professional uh, psychiatrist and psychotherapist, when you talk to them candidly, they recognize the full limitations of their pay-for-service model and the office-based practice, and all of them long for a more communal approach where you can walk with someone in, in life. He says, we're living the dream, the ideal community context where troubled people can find meaning and relationships. And it's in meaning and relationships that you get pulled out of your trouble. That's how you find healing. So a healthy church is Jesus' divinely ordained context where all of us who've experienced the personal and relational brokenness can find healing. This in essence, and like not this particularly, but around these type people are in essence the operation room. It's our garage where the repair happens. So how does Christ do this today? What are the things that we need to put in place? You know, as we think about our church, need formal things and informal things. I mean, need formal things like kind of rest. Do, do we need to specifically set aside, again, deacons who are specifically tasked with carrying out the ministry to the weak and the vulnerable and the poor? That's their primary responsibility and start small in different ways that we can do that. Do we need to have a, a more holistic understanding of how that ministry takes place, knowing that the state has taken over most of those operations? and need to intentionally send missionaries into those places, saying, wait, 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 you can't have this. This is ours. That's one of the things I think is so beautiful what the Goodmans are doing with MCO and helping those doctors train and have a more holistic picture of what real medicine is and healing is. You know, in many ways, the hospital was ours. We started that. And I think, all right, how do we bring Christ's healing into these places? Formal. But then also in an informal way. Just the basic recognition that everyone in this room is a pastoral counselor and everyone needs pastoral counsel. So all of us, we both need it and we give it. We are. So what it means to be a kingdom of priests where we engage in the healing ministry to others. So what's the tool? What's the primary tool to do that healing? The primary tool is, is sacrifice. You know, one of the things I saw in one church that I really admire, they kind of have their, their mission statement for their group of deacons is uh, on my sheet that fell on the ground that you can see on the bottom of your sheet, but it says the diaconate exists to contribute to the building of a repentant and rejoicing community. So kind of their goal as a church is to build this community that's repentant and rejoicing. And the way they do it is through loving, truth-telling relationships where practical, visible needs are being met while hearts are being changed through encounters with Jesus and one another. You know, I think that's such a beautiful statement of the way he continues that priestly ministry of bringing relational healing. But if you ask anyone who's involved in this in any way, you recognize the vast amounts of sacrifice that are required. Sacrifice is our tool. You know, it would take tremendous sacrifice in order to become the type of person who is able to be loving and truth-telling in your relationships where practical, visible needs can be met. Take a tremendous, tremendous amount. The sacrifice to learn to listen, the sacrifice to learn wisdom, the sacrifice to enter in, the sacrifice to sacrifice time, materials, resources. So the question is, where do we get the motivation for that kind of sacrifice? Where do you get the power? 
And what we've seen in all of these three ministries of Jesus, just like before you can lead, you have to be led. And before you can sacrifice for others, you have to experience the sacrifice he's already given for you. You know, every day we have to be reminded that on the cross, he gave the ultimate sacrifice for us. And so that can then free us and empower us to give hundreds of small little sacrifices for others. And that's part of the dynamic. You know, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body that's broken for you. See, I'm now going to be broken so you can be made whole. And then once you're made whole, you can be an agent and an engine of making others whole as well. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for you. What's it for specifically? It's for the forgiveness of sins. Like this is how the first great relationship that's broken is restored and renewed. You now can have your sins forgiven. You can be redeemed and brought back into the presence of the living Lord. And in his presence, you can be free to go out into the presence of others and carry that reconciling ministry. You can reconcile others because you've been reconciled with him. So take in remembrance of him. Lord, we praise you for your grace and mercy. We praise you for the power of your continual healing ministry. We pray that you renew and restore relationships and that you've promised that if we come into your presence, if we repent of our sins and we confess them, you are faithful and you are just to forgive them. And we can have our relationship with our heavenly father renewed and restored. So I pray that if anyone has never done that, they would do that now. They would cry out to you in asking for forgiveness and also praise you that you heal the broken relationship that we have with ourselves. Uh, no more guilt in life, no more fear, no more anxiety can be ours. You can set us free. So I pray for anyone who they feel internally divided or internally broken or internally uh, downcast and discouraged. I pray that you would refresh and renew them, heal them. And we praise you that you promise to heal and restore broken relationships. And Lord, we all come wounded by relationships and have wounded others. So right now we take a moment, if there's any relationships in our life that we know need to be restored or healed, we lay them at your feet and we ask that you would do that. And Lord, we also praise you that implicit and, and part of the, the reality of the gospel is not just healing our relationship with, with your Father, Christ. Christ is not just healing relationship with the Father. It's not just healing relationship with ourselves and others, but it's also healing our broken world. As we look out into the world, we see uh, wars beginning and nations raise, raging. And so we pray for the healing of the nations. We confess and and call out to you because you, you are the one to make war cease to the ends of the earth. You are the one that's promised to break the bow and shatter the spear and burn the chariots with fire. And our task is to be still and know that you are God. So in the midst of anxiety, an age of anxiety, help us to be still and know that you are God and you will be exalted in all the earth. You will be exalted among the nations. So we lay before you now a national strife. We pray for believers both in Ukraine and Russia who are uh, caught in massive geopolitical 
machinations. We pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would encourage them. And we pray that this would end very soon and quickly. Know this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.